out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's be honest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bible because I spoke to Boo Huadine to find out more about life, love, poetry, basically being in a band and the creative process and much, much more. So after some casual chat, God, it was casual, um, we got down to the exciting subject that was, um, well, he confessed a secret. Well, it wasn't much of a secret. He once lived in Norwich, which I was quite impressed by, or excited by. I don't get out much, okay? Um, And uh, I responded to that with great enthusiasm. And then he told me why the Bible was signed to Bax Records, because they were a Norwich-based indie label back in the day. Some of you will know that, most of you won't. Anyway, this is the story of Boo and his life, starting with, um, yes, the story of Bax Records, also the Bible, and his solo career and and working with Eddie Riedel. So, sit back, relax, and... um, Get a pen and paper, because there's quite a lot of interesting facts in this one. He also tells me a secret, but he tells me that I have to edit it out. So I did. Ooh, it's tricky. I cannot remember so long ago, but <laughs> that's how I ended up uh, the Bible being on Bax Records. And uh, I still speak to them. They're called Shellshock now, but I still speak to the distributed guys maybe two or three times a week even because i do lots of new records so i still i still work with them which is really nice yes well it's 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 a great golden period really of music so look i mean my um yes i I, you know actually without sounding like an old person just reminiscing there was kind of a lot of bands in the 80s weren't there when you look back at it there was there was a colossal amount of music so um and what i didn't realize when i started this project was quite no quite how many there were even though i thought i knew or was a bit on the scene i didn't you know but there were just millions and also the other thing one has to remember is that um Back in those days, to get to hear a record, you had to either invest in it or luckily catch it on something like the John Peel show. So it wasn't that easy yeah. to hear music. You know, I remember yeah. people would talk about a record and it's like, great, but how do I get hold of it? And, and, you know, I didn't used to have much money. So it was a bit different back then. So often I think music would come along and sometimes, you know, some records you got and some records you didn't and then something else would happen. So it was kind of it was kind of like a very productive time, really. So... I think the 80s was yeah, quite I mean, extraordinary. The, 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 yes. So that was my... You, you, yeah, because of a lot of us went the indie route and then we got a major deal, so we saw both sides of it. And, uh, I have to say I preferred the indie bit. <laughs> yes, well, that's quite interesting. But look, I'm in my, um, my mid-50s now. I was born in 64. And so yeah. my, my early musical world, you know, obviously was that kind of early Top of the Pops being very obsessed with you know, the glam rock period of, of sort of Sweet yeah, and of T-Rex. And, um, and thankfully, David Bowie was my first love. So that was quite yeah. a, a massive well relief. It could yeah, be. At least it wasn't Kenny. Well or or um, Gary Glitter, really. That was probably closer. If I, if a, a few years before would have been Gary, probably. I saw Gary Glitter once in Huddersfield. It was awful. Yes. It was, that... it, was, it was after his peak period. And it was in the uni at Huddersfield. And I remember the thing... It was when he turned his head, which he used to do like that, you know, that was part of his act. His jowls would follow shortly oh. afterwards. And instead of silver shoes, he had some trainers on with tin foil on them. Was that his 80s comeback when he started doing the. Um, the... It was before then that he had a really a period where he was just one up from a pub act. And so there, it wasn't even full. And I remember there was an old lady sitting on the stage and. It just didn't feel like much of an event, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know in the 80s, there was a lot of um, office workers suddenly went to their Christmas party to the Gary Glitter show, which seemed yeah, to that be... Was, di- like, that was later than that. Yeah. I think this was probably about 79 or 80. Yes. It was because I was visiting a friend of mine who was at uni in Huddersfield. And then I, we saw him again in the Bible. We were in Capitol Radio. And we were waiting to do some promo or something, and he came in wearing a, a sort of horrible sort of leather cat suit, 
he looked a bit like a he looked a bit like a black pudding walking across the thing, and we all just he gave off this amazingly creepy vibe, and we were all just like, ooh. Little did we know that we were right. <laughs> yes, well, luckily, it was seeing, seeing Bowie's Space Oddity and then mm. thinking I must go and buy that single and get very excited with the B-side, which had changes yeah. in Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, that, that was the re-release, wasn't it, in it was 1975? In 75. So, look, what, were your, what was that kind of, you know, when you were about 10, 11, when you started to get a bit more kind of um, onto the sort of music scene, which is kind of roughly when people started to sort of pick up their ears and think, actually, I'm kind of obsessed with this. And your parents would go, I don't know if it's a boy or girl, man or woman. They've all got long hair, though they had beards, so it was pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. But I just wondered what your kind of moment was. Well, when... it was a bit late. I think it was a little bit later because I didn't I didn't really like a lot of stuff when I was young. Like, all my friends at school liked yes and things like that and i'm sure they're great and i haven't listened to them and probably if i listen to them now i go oh that's good but i just really didn't understand why there needed to be songs about dragons and stuff it didn't didn't sort of uh do anything for me but then there was somebody came to school they brought into school it was there was there's always one really cool guy in your class at school and uh, this guy brought in down by the jetty by dr Philgood, and that it sort of blew my mind a little bit. And then I started buying records after that. And then punk was a couple of years after that. But alongside with that, I used to really, really like old sixes soul and stuff like that, which my friends used to tease me about at school. And I, they were wrong and I was right. Yes. Well, John, well <laughs> interesting enough, John Peel once said about his, you know, like looking back to his 60s period when he was doing his uh, perfume garden, wasn't he, on some yeah. sort of boat in the North Sea. And he yeah. said... Uh, Tony Blackburn was probably more, you know, had it better than he did in in Tony Blackburn's obsession with Motown and sort of black soul music than some of John Peel's stuff, which is a much, bit... Much, much maligned DJ, I think. I know he's, he's a bit... But he was very, very good. Yes, and, and uh, I think, you know... Though I think John Peel did introduce us... Well, not me, because I was... But I think, it's, I think it's interesting, though, that John Peel would say that. Not, you know, it's interesting. Yes, and, and I... he should know. I mean, because he was a, obviously these people are age and stuff. He's a, a complete hero, isn't he? You know. So. Well, he what he absolutely became such a icon, especially in that decade. But yeah, I, I always remember him sort of saying, you know, Tony Blackburn had got it probably more right than he did, even though what you know Peel was playing was probably very important and good. But you know, he obviously was. Um, he probably was also dismissing what a lot of that Motown music was as well. So yeah, I think he. I think. He sort of really hit his stride in the 80s, didn't he? He so, did. He, he suddenly knew. Because it was interesting. I was reading one of his books. Oh, this is the one. Um, good Night and mm. Good Riddance. And it was interesting that how whoever wrote that, David Cavanaugh, um, he said that, you know, Peel was kind of a bit irrelevant in the 70s for a lot of the period until the Ramones and the, um, the Dam came along. Because up to then, it was like he was fudging around. Like you said, the great prog period and sort of, there was not that much of a scene particularly and um, and a lot of the music he was playing was kind of still kind of it wasn't of its time you know it wasn't that interesting and it was interesting because you mentioned prog rock in that way because my I had an older brother seven years older than me so his mu musical moment was Yes and Genesis and Wishbone yeah Ash. of course and, which um, it should have been my moment because I'm three years older than you but it was for all my pals at school but it just it just didn't it just didn't work for me until and there was Dr. Feelgood and then after that the uh the Eddie and the Hot Rods live EP with that get out of Denver on it. I remember hearing that on the radio. That was that was that was really important that record. Everyone forgets it, but it was really important. And then then Punk arrived, whereas it's been history I think it's been a bit rewritten saying it was all New York dolls and all that sort of stuff. But I don't that that wasn't what I remember. I remember a lot of uh, sort of hyped up R&B just before punk. That's what I remember, the energy yes. of those records. Did you also, because I did an interview with Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness, who was around yeah. in 75, and he said that he was two years too early for punk, but all the people who came to see him went off and formed punk, punk bands. And he... Yeah. And, and I just wondered, because you, you obviously mentioned Dr feel good and there was that kind of slightly high energy sort of public and oh. you know vibe that was going on at the time i just wonder if you'd also come across bands like that 
if I had. Yes. Yeah, Dr. Philgood was yeah, it was huge. I think it's I think it was a huge thing. I think that that was that was sort of like uh, the 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 lighting, the fuse of that you could just be. It was, the thing that I loved about Down by the Jetty was that it was in mono. It was a black and white cover, and it was like at the anti prog thing. There was hardly any 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 unicorns on the cover at all. No. And it was like, <laughs> and it just it just. I just it got to me, and then of course, and there were stuff coming from America as well. Another Powell had the remote, which is seventy four, I think, the first remote had that, and also I remember you know hearing talking talking heads. So it's that seventy five hearing like Psycho Killer, hearing that in a shop, and the, all the sniffing glue magazines in the record shops, and all that sort of thing, and Spiral Scratch, all of that. Was, there was seemed to be a natural lineage line. Uh, of stuff arriving which I remember very very clearly because I bought the records and I was there and yet often when I read histories of that time there are bands that I don't recall at all and bands that I thought were important to the sense of a change happening that don't get mentioned. Yes well this is true this is why it's always good to document these things otherwise you're, yeah. you're right punk you know the whole punk world is a bit like the indie world in the 80s you know that's a bit simplistic in my mind whereas when you scratch the surface there's a lot more interesting stuff that goes on rather than stuff that gets broadcast on you know BBC 4 on a Friday night yeah. Um, yes, Friday night's rock documentary. So when did you start to form bands and start to sort of... Think well, I was a bit later, I was at school. I didn't play anything particularly, and I learned guitar quite late. Uh, so I had a school band, that was, which is, OK, I'm still, like, the guy who played guitar. I live in Glasgow, but I'm from, you know, lived in Cambridge, and the guy who, by pure coincidence, lives... Up, I live in Glasgow, and there's a square... And I can see into his living room, and that's by pure fluke that he's moved in, that we've moved in either side of a square in Glasgow. It's astonishing. So I'm still friends with him. And the other guy, it's called John McKinley, he came to a gig of mine in Winchester just for Christmas, and I hadn't seen him since we were at school together. It was incredible. It's amazing when you've been in a band with someone, you have a sort of connection. He looks so much more like a rock star than me. He should have. He should have stuck with it. Then after that, I I had a I had a band. <laughs> I, I had a band which was called Placebo Thing, and we used to play uh, in the local Cambridge sort of venues. It was, it was a good band, I think. I still do a couple of the songs even now, and I didn't realise how good it was. And I remember we made a tape. We had a fantastic drummer, which is why I think people liked us. And I took the tape down to Virgin and I played it to them and they really liked it. And they said, oh, that's great. We'd like to give you a deal. And I was such a Herbert. I didn't know what that meant. I just went, great. And I just <laughs> went home. <laughs> I didn't follow it up or anything. <laughs> so then after that, I was in the band. I went, I sent a demo. I took a demo into Rough Trade, which uh, I remember Jeff being there, and he was nice enough about it. But it was uh, it was kind of a real quite a sweet thing when years later, uh, with Eddie Reader that I play with, and also two of my own records. Jeff was my uh, with Eddie we were on Rough Trade, and I was on uh, on Blanco Negro, so which was his label through Warner. So it was really sweet that I ended up having taken that demo to him. But I also sent the demo to two local groups in Cambridge who'd formed a record label, they were called, uh, one band was called Erzatz and the other one was called Dogma Cats and they had a label called Leisure Sounds and I sent them this demo, which I'd made on a five string guitar because I broke a string and I couldn't afford a new one. But they liked it and they invited me on along to, to meet them and, I, and then I ended up playing with three of them making a, a, a really good tape and from that came a band called The Great Divide, which I couldn't, I, I pretended to be the keyboard player. I, I had a keyboard, but I couldn't play it. And um, But we managed to, we put out an indie single, and then we managed to get a deal on Ensign Records, uh, which is like people like Boomtown Rats, and then later people like Sinead O'Connor and, and Waterboys. And I signed a publishing deal then, and I'm, I'm a very old man now, and I'm still on that publishing deal to this day. Blimey, that was that was kind of like forty years ago. Being at the disco, having a slow dance, and marrying and living with the person that you yeah, uh, it's, it's it's really incredible. I I I just before speaking to you, I was uh, <laughs> in a rather unusual turn of events. 
my publisher is a fantastic man. I'm at Chrysalis is who I'm with. Fantastic man called Andy Godfrey, who I really, really like. And he sent me a demo. I, I, I was just laughing, thinking, I'm sure it's meant to be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, I know it'll, it'll be really good. He's a good musician. He used to be in a band. I don't know if a band you remember. There were a really great band called Mood Six. Do you remember them? They were like a psychedelic 80s band, so unusual at the time. So um, anyway, so The Great Divide... Suddenly we had a major label deal, but we didn't get an advance. And I worked in a record shop at the time, and I knew my my plan to dominate the world hadn't gone particularly well. But when I had to unbox my own single, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was a weird. And so you look because I'm from Norwich, and obviously we remember things like Bax Records with great fondness, yes, and then. The great Andy's records came. Well, I worked. I worked for Andy. I worked in the beat goes on, right? I, and and then I worked in the warehouse, and I formed the Bible with one other guy initially, and that wasn't even meant to be our name. We changed our name every week, but that's the one that stuck at the time. People started being interested in us, and I worked in the warehouse. We formed the band and put out the first album, which I'd saved up money from working in the warehouse, the first album, Walking the Goes Back Home, which even now, even now, I get, uh, it sells even now, really remarkably. It was made for 700 quid. Oh, it was the money I'd saved. It's made at a studio called Red Shop Recorders and then finished in Cambridge. And then we put that out. And uh, my job in the warehouse, in the record warehouse, was pushing around a trolley and... Uh, either record shops in Andy's chain would ring up and say, can I have three Peter Gabriels, please? And I'd put them in the trolley. Or record companies would ring up, normally because they were they were unhappy with the records we'd sent back as faulties, you know, because there's nothing wrong with this. Why have you sent us back uh, 300 copies of uh, the Muppets Christmas album, Volume 2? Well, they were all warped. No, they weren't. That was in my normal phone call. <laughs> But I was getting record companies ringing me up and I'd go immediately on the defensive, but they were trying to offer us a record deal. So it's very strange. And in the end, uh, we signed with Chrysalis and the man who'd signed us to Ensign is a very, very important man. He died last year and I, he's really important in my life. It's a man called Nigel Grange. And Nigel Grange, in his 20s, signed people like Thin Lizzy and Rod Stewart uh, and then later on, he had Ensign and he had the Boomtown Rats and all that, and Beggar and Co., which is interesting because they, his partner was a man called uh, Chris Hill and did a lot of the that that sort of um, soul music, UK soul music, which I thought was important because they'd never been signed before with bands like that, and they were an interesting label. And then later on, they had Sinead O'Connor and World Party and um, Waterboys. And and the Bible as well because we during that time and some were bought by Chrysler so I, I I sort of ended up with him again and he's a, he was a, a an infuriating but great man to be around I was very lucky all the people I've worked with like him Jeff Travers um, the person I'm with now Tom Rose who has Reveal Records I've been very very lucky that I've worked with really decent people and in in particular the man who managed the Bible wonderful man called Marcus Russell who then went on to manage Oasis so we were very very lucky we all we just met the good guys yes absolutely did you <laughs> did that mean you because um because obviously in that time there was a lot of indie labels that had started like 53rd yeah. and 3rd and Vindaloo Records and Kitchenware yeah. and Creation Records who obviously you know that was where Oasis ended up so look I, I mean during the 80s I mean we'd had Thatcher in 79 and then, um, obviously, you know, a lot of unemployment at that stage. But luckily for you, you weren't unemployed because a lot of bands from that well, period... Well, actually, I kind of was. At the, uh, still, I got the job in the record shop, yeah, for quite a long time. And I think it's a real shame because it's during that period. And I, I was true for Isis as well. Like, all the great bands, all the really great bands, the Pulp and all that, they're all, all dull bands, all of them, if you know what I mean. Yes, they were, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the thing that got me, you know, because during that period, there was been the unemployment benefit, jobs, lands, lands yeah. enterprise lands, all that kind of malarkey. So a lot of people just went, I'm um, sort of leaving school and there's nothing there, no future, as, as we said. And suddenly, yeah, just be in a band for a year and just mess around. See, the only way you can be in a band now is if you've got 
rich parents, you know. Yes. So I think it's changed a lot of the the way bands are. But you know, although I did get a job after a while, initially we were a dull band, and I think it's one of the great losses in in, in that that's gone because when that all those bands came to fruition in the 90s that was that was the biggest industry in britain i know <laughs> it's, it's ironically <laughs> but there were but at the, and and also the other thing is that you know there were the gatekeepers weren't there there were like you had the music press who were mm. quite a huge and massive circulation for people like the nme mm. and sounds mm. melody maker and then you had john peel which i, I guess you weren't a particularly a a John Peel type band, but at the same time, I remember I remember him playing us when the the first he was the first person to give us a play. Yes, we did. We never did a session for him, but he did. He would play us. I always wanted to do a session. All my mates got to do sessions, but we seemed to go straight to Andy Kershaw and Janice Long. Janice Long. We did for some reason. I think it's because we got a major deal or something. It was just seen as a bit of a bit bad form to get a major deal. Well, I think he also he felt that his kind of raison d'etre wasn't to give people who already had a leg up another leg up, but you know because they. It's were... so funny. I can understand that, but when you're when you're pushing a trolley in a warehouse, you don't necessarily feel like you've got a leg up. <laughs> but I do understand. I remember I remember uh, someone from the NME coming to interview me, and we you know, and speaking to me as though I was some sort of sort of. Regency prints or something, and I'm sort of like I'm covered in sandwiches, and my trousers are torn, and I'm like I can only give you ten minutes because I've got to push a trolley again. It was like quite funny, but I I do understand how it worked. Yes, it I suppose. I would have, yeah, I would have loved to have done a John Peel session, though he did play us, so that was a thrill, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure he liked us or anything, but that doesn't matter. Well, I don't know. I, he's still a hero to me. I say, yeah, like everyone at Bax used to tape the program. And then share it around and stuff. And I'm I'm still friends with them. I still speak to them uh, really quite often. So it's like uh, uh, I'm I still I, I, yeah. Part of that period has never left my life actually. You know because uh, for example I'm making a record today, and um, it's going to be distributed by them. So I still speak to them. You know so it's it's great. Yes. And the other thing, there was, you know, every town city had a venue, didn't they? They'd have an indie night or alternative club night where you, you know, like yeah. Norwich had the Arts Centre and the Wild Club and you'd have... That's three... it, the Wild Club, that's, I, I was trying to remember that. Three... And Jack, 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 Jackards or something like that. There was a punk yeah. place in the yeah. sort of 70s, 80s, the Wild yeah. Club, you know, all the, you know, so, and then you had, you know, I won't go through every town and what venue they well, had. Well, in but Cambridge you... where we were, initially we went the back and race. forth between... Well, it's the boat race, but it was a bit later. But before then, the, the place called the Sound Cellar, which I used to, the Great Northern, and I lived in a flat above those two venues. And you either played in the Sound Cellar or the Great Northern. It was you couldn't play in both. There was there was a sort of, and and we were a Sound Cellar band, and the Great Northern bands were Great Northern bands. But that's gone. But there was places that you could go and play, and then there's the Burley Arms as well. That was a place that the Bible played. In fact, our debut. Uh, which I, I we, we sort of actually I think um, we made we made lots of mistakes and in fact made so many mistakes we started to call it the curse and and it may be calling your, your naming your band after the good book was the, the first mistake but we did our first ever gig on the same night in Burley Arms as, as the same night as Live Aid and it wasn't as well attended as, as I'd have hoped <laughs> yeah you were you were but, against quite a competition but the, that night. the brilliant thing about the curse is it continued like our singles would be like there's a midweek sort of thing chart and then and then the real chart and that still happens now and in the midweek if you, they say oh you're number 40 on the midweek and what normally happens is on the Sunday you'd be maybe 41 or 39 it's very accurate but we would quite often get calls like oh great your single is number 17 on the midweek oh great uh it's gone down to 54 <laughs> so it used to happen to us all the time so we called it the curse and then when the band split up uh, the others signed to Rough Trade and were called Liberty Horses and made an absolutely wonderful album called Dreamland. It's an absolutely wonderful album, the McCall Brothers. Um, and but what amazingly, the curse left me and went to them, and they made their first video uh, with an American director. Very expensive. It was a big thing for Jeff to have 
coughed up for it. And um, uh, Neil was the guitarist <clears throat> was uh, driving back to the airport to take the uh, director to the, the airport so he could fly home to America to edit the, the uh, video. They stopped off for a cup of tea, and when they came out, Neil's car had been stolen. <laughs> no video. And the first thing I said to him is, the curse. The curse. It's yours now. It's Yes, you passed it on. Thank yeah, God you left that one. And I, I'm still, I was talking even only yesterday about a project that I've written a project with somebody here called Adam Holmes. And Neil, uh, the producer, has hired Neil to, to play the guitar on it. So we still see each other and, and, and end up doing music together. Yes, it is. It's quite extraordinary. But look, you know, with the 80s, you know, we had that post-punk yeah. period of scratchy bands like Peel and um, Gang of Four and uh, Magazine. Mm. Then we had a bit of that kind of new wave stuff with, you know, Soft Cell and, and Depeche yeah. Mode. But then the indie world, I, I kind of look at indie rock as the, you know, this Smiths period, which is 87, yeah. 83 to 87, um, where jingly jangly guitars became, you know, the the absolute, you know, I don't know, the indie gold, wasn't it really? And and mm. you know, John Peel was kind of playing a lot of that stuff. And they, you had the, you had Orange Juice a little bit in the early eighties, and you had the June Brides, uh, the Go Betweens, the Triffids. You know, all these incredibly beautiful bands making whimsical yeah. pop that, you know, kids like me absolutely loved. And and you were right there at the same time, weren't you? you well, we were, we were. Our first gig in London was opening for the Triffids, I remember that. Um, yeah, we yes, definitely we were there. You were definitely At the same time. I mean, it's very funny for me to think back to that period because I've only done it recently during this lockdown. It's that I have never really looked back before. I've just, it's just like, well, what, what next, what next? And I have done a bit of looking back, and it's, I, there's some really magical memories that have returned to me that I've forgotten. And I remember playing, oh, my gosh, I can't remember what was the name of the venue with the Triffids, but I really enjoyed that. I thought they were great. Um, not, yeah, but, but probably a lot of those bands that you mentioned we played with, not, not so much um, Gang of Four, but Gang of Four... Uh, Eddie Reader, I've played with for a very, very long time. Like it's 25 years I've played with Eddie. And um, she used to be in Gang of Four, in the second sort of uh, version of Gang of Four. And I went to watch Gang of Four play at the Town and Country about maybe five years ago with her. What a band. Mind-blowing. I loved it. And then we saw them again abroad somewhere. Yes. Fantastic band. So I don't think I ever had anything to do with the June Brides, but I think everyone else you've mentioned, I might know someone or I've met or whatever. And it's really, uh, I'm really kind of, wow, it really excites me that I was there. You, you were definitely, you were absolutely there. So sort of, uh, doing <laughs> yeah. that zeitgeist, because cause then what happens yeah. as, as the decade goes on is that obviously, yeah. I say obviously, but it's not that obvious, you know, you know, ecstasy came and the music scene changed. But before we get to that world of murkiness, um, but you were there sort of at the beginning of, of indie pop and obviously you were on a major label. So that sort of knocked your sort of uh, indie sort of cred down a bit. Well, it did with the first album was on, on backs. Yes, and um, but I don't know if we were ever particularly beloved by critics. We were at the very, very beginning. We got some, and then, but they turned on us. It was just kind of weird. And it was one really, really funny uh, time. We got a review in the NME saying that we were a bunch of bastards and hated us and stuff like that, and uh, went into great detail about what a terrible gig it was. Um, which was quite amusing because it was printed. What well, the amusing thing was that the gig had been cancelled and it never happened. <laughs> 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 but they just obviously we fell a bit out of favour with them. And then, then at the same time, I would work with people, and, and their records. You know, I might have even been on the records or something. But oh, this this one's good. Oh, this one's terrible. But that's it. It, it was. Um, it was what's really nice is every t couple of years we still play, and um, we last time we played I think it was two years ago, uh, and more people came to see us than we thought that should have done. And it was in my mind that's the best show we ever did, best gig we ever did. It was absolutely magic. Um, it had uh, it had still had all the stuff that we felt about back then but it had this sort of extra layer of wonderfulness so it's i'm very glad to have been in that band yes and, and to watch neil 
in particular go on and do such astonishing things. Neil's very interesting in that um, he's from uh, the McCall family. So his dad was Ewan McCall and his mother was Peggy Seeger, right? And his son is Jamie McCall from Bombay Bicycle Club. And there was a brilliant week about two, three years ago when all three generations of the McCalls were on tour at the same time. <laughs> wow, that is... They're a really special family. Incredible. And obviously he was the brother of Kirsty, wasn't he? He was, half-brother, yeah. And then... Um, well, they were incredibly close. That was a terrible day. I was in Ignition, which is Marcus's management com company, and when that, that was a, a terrible day. And I'd met her a few times, and the thing... Uh, the two things about Kirsty is, A, we thought she was the best. In, like, everyone thought, oh, she's the best at writing songs of us lot. She's the best. And also, I she was incredibly nice to me when there were a couple of situations where I was doing gigs or whatever, and there were lots of dead famous people about, and I felt really out of my depth. It would, it would always be her who'd come over and say, you're right, would you like a cup of tea or something? She's brilliant. And she's amazing in that, can you think of anyone else who would be loved by both the Smiths and the Pogues and and, and you too? And everybody loved her, quite rightly, because she was brilliant. You know, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I was lucky to see her live once when she was coming <laughs> to the UEA when she, it was probably the early 90s, I guess. But, yeah. it was, but look, with, with, with a lot of the bands that I've, I've interviewed yeah. at this time, I mean, they do have a, a very interesting five-year narrative, don't they? Which is the, they get together, they have that honeymoon phase, which is good. And with a lot of these bands, you know, they get the John Peel, you know, gives them a spin on the single. They get the John Peel session. I know you didn't. The first album, things are looking really rosy. The second album, things aren't so rosy. And then if anybody ever tours America, it always kind of finishes them off and they come back and go, right, that's it. I'm going to give it all up. So so you had a sort of kind of more of a four-year narrative, didn't you, really? Yeah, we got broke quicker. <laughs> <laughs> they broke. We did, but what happened, though, was that we... So we broke up because we were broke and I'd got a child and uh, we broke up in a great way in that Marcus is never say you've broken up to each other. Just say you're not, you know, you're taking a break. Brilliant advice. So I went off and I made a solo album on Chrysalis. And then uh, after that, somehow... I managed to uh, bumped into Jeff again and I got a, a deal with Blanco Negro and I went back to them and I said, I've got this record deal, a solo record deal, but I'd like to, I'd like it to be us again. So we made a record for Warners, which I've got a few down there. It's called Dodo and it's easily my favorite Bible record. Really good. It was produced by Jim Abyss. Who went, they went on to do like um, Arctic Monkeys and stuff like that. So it had a sort of bit more of an edge to it. And it was a bit more experimental than uh, the second record was, which although I love, really that's that was the very much the um, the 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 well-behaved version of us, whereas this record was just a, had a bit stranger. And we did some gigs, and people came to see us and loved it and stuff. But then again, we just couldn't we just couldn't maintain it financially. Yes. So that's normally why bands split up. Yeah, lack of money. Yeah. Because you've got to eat and, and that. And the other thing is that we were all, all of us, particularly me and Neil, were always very, uh, just looking for other other things to do and just, look, I love what I do, you know. So I, I, I ended up making an album with a guy called Darden Smith, who's a, a, a Texan songwriter, and that led to a whole other adventure. I met Eddie, which has led to the most incredible adventure, and I write songs for people, I produce people. It's just, it's just... It was. It just wasn't going to work. But I'm glad I did it. You know. Yeah, but then as a solo artist, I mean, because most mostly, but at that stage, you're thinking um, music isn't going to be the career because it isn't going to pay anything like rent, the MOT, etc. But you you have an amazing successful solo uh, career instead. So did that sort of just? Well, feel it's around that time I said I had a, my first child. I just had a word with myself. It says if I'm going to do this, I've got to make sure. Two things. A, it's artistically completely uncompromised. Uncom and B, I support my family. Those like to, I, gave, I gave myself those two goals and I've been very lucky. I've never been very successful, but I 
get to make a record every year or so and I've still got a record deal and I get to play and work with brilliant people every day so uh that's what I chose to do so yes. I never people sometimes say do you look back on the bible and feel like oh and, and oh, if only I kind of don't because I've had lots of other things happen and well it's, absolutely it, yeah it, but it's a lovely lovely period and I really I actually love I love those people. There's a thing about being in a band. Have you ever been in a band? I haven't been in a band, no. Well, I don't want to sound as though I'm leaving you out here, but I, I think the best film I've ever seen about being in a band is called New York Doll, and it's about Killer, the bass player. And it's an incredible um, story because the, the film starts with him. He's given up music for a very long time, and, and he runs the library in the mormon tabernacle in salt lake city very strange but during the making of the film morrissey gets in touch with um them the new the dolls and with a view to them playing reforming and playing at meltdown in the south bank and it's the film is about that but what strikes you is when you first meet him he's this very beaten by life sort of guy you know he's he's broke he's He's got no, in, you know, I think he had to borrow a bass to do the gig, as if memory serves me, that, that, or, or to practice, whatever, oh, yeah. you know. He had nothing. And and he's telling these 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 women, these older ladies, that he says, yeah, I'm going to go to London and play a gig. And they're going, oh, oh so that's so amazing, you know. And he's this beaten guy. But then as the band meet up and they start rehearsing and it sounds powerful, he changes he, he becomes somebody else. He has a, 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 a swagger, just a confidence and a, and a sort of, oh, it's beautiful to see. And I think anyone who's been in a band who's been on that journey, even though we're not nothing like the Dolls or at all, New York Dolls at all, it's a thing that never leaves you. Yes. And when, when we meet, it's a sort of, although we argued and we used to argue all the time, there's a sort of, a, there's a sort of beautiful shared experience. So I'm very grateful for that. I love it. And 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 for someone like Neil, who was making music from a very young age with his parents, and then who continues to make music now. I mean, he was. I can't remember the name. But he nearly won the Mercury last year. I can't remember what what the name of the act was. Is it Nadine Shah? Is that her name? Oh yes, that's, that's right. That's so he's still like right pushing and and all that, and and this project that. I told you he's going to do now it's like always but when we meet we do we're very grateful for that period because it was really beautiful you know well absolutely but then you know yeah. like Morrissey you, you you know you sort of had your period in the in a band during the sort of um the 80s but but were sort of obviously more creative during your solo career from the next three decades so it didn't <laughs> obviously it doesn't it doesn't stop does it no, it's just if it's in you, it's because I meet some people who are in bands and, and, and it was like a dream, which I understand, uh, or, or a sort of goal. That was never the case for me or for Neil. It's just, it's our trade, for want of a better word. That's what Neil's trade. He was raised to, to be a musician. And I have always been interested in songs. Um, that's what I do. I do that every day. I'm like... Uh, but you seem very modest with it, because because obviously you gave well, no, me. I'm not. Look, I've got all my gold discs on the wall. I there. can see your gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible shot. That was my wife's idea to put those up. There. I know it's nice. All your all your Skype Zoom meetings, you go. Oh yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, so can... just just. Just relax. <laughs> <laughs> that's another goal. Oh, that's I like it when people come round. Well, they don't anymore, obviously, because of COVID. But when people used to come round to write with me, it just it, it just put them on their back foot a little bit. But, you know what yeah. I mean? Just reminded them who they who they're messing with. Yes, it's logic, but, isn't? It? But the <laughs> but you don't come over as the slightly tortured creative artist who was sort of angst ridden and then become slightly dodgy in political views. That's hopefully kind of, not. No. Good Lord, no. But the... Uh, <laughs> no, but you, no. <laughs> but from the warehouse, the, you know, Andy's records, you know, there isn't that kind of, you know, like we've all heard the story of, you know, Ian, Ian Curtis from Joy Division and, and sort of many artists who've written great works and recorded great albums and been on tour and had all that kind of ego stuff. We've watched Mott the, Hoop, uh, Mott the 
Motley Crue documentaries. You know, people get messy, yeah. don't they? But you didn't get messy. You didn't. Oh, we had our we had our arguments and stuff, but it's 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 too much of a joyful thing to be allowed to do. You know, I get I work really hard because I want to keep doing this. I, I mean, that sounds like it's not really hard, is it? It's just making up some words and stuff. But I just go. I feel so lucky that I still get to do it so much. I mean, if just in my life, in the last week, it's, it's been a particularly amazing week for things coming to fruition and working with. It's a, it's a privilege and a joy to do it. And of course, when I, I do, when I make my own records, it gives me the chance to make my own records, which are becoming more and more sort of um, unsellable. But that's. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't care. <laughs> I mean, when did you find your voice? When did you sort of manage, you know, think to yourself, God, actually, I've, I've got something quite special here? Um, I don't know. I know that I, when I was a, a kid, very, very young, I knew that that's what I wanted to do was make up songs. I had no musical ability. I didn't even know what a song was, but I can remember lying on the top bunk thinking that, and that sort of stuck with me. But I would say that it, in... If I'm totally honest, it was it's more recently that I felt that I, I I listen back to work I've done than go, actually that's okay. So I think there's an advantage to not being naturally gifted. It makes you work harder. Yes. Well, I I, I mean I used to sort of be very keen on football, to be honest. And yeah. actually, most of the stories I've read about football players was the the ones who got rejected and had to struggle. And made it kind of made it more than those who were mm. naturally gifted and suddenly got, yep, you're doing really well. And then suddenly it all goes off the rail. I mean, oh, that's I, kind of 100% of the time, really. I, I, I think there's something in that. I had this notion that I wanted to do it, but I didn't have the, I did, yeah, there, it wasn't available to me. Uh, I had to work really hard at it. But it's, I, I think I put my 10,000 hours in. It's always about the idea with songs to me, always about the idea. Always, and um, but it t it took a while to be able to go from idea to something you can hear to my that I thought was okay, and that I still strive for that, like every day. Yes, but when you... you can't really see, but I'm surrounded by bits of paper and people that I'm working with, and it's quite messy in here. But it's, what a, what, a, what a, like what a brilliant thing. Absolutely. And when you have to, you know, when you get a commission and, and to write for somebody else, mm. does, how does your brain cope with, between, say, writing for a solo album and thinking, oh, actually, I've been asked to write a song for, I don't know, Paul Young or Martin <sighs> Pella? Or... Yes. Well, those were unusual. Well, the, the better, best way to say it is that where, the way I work now is I, I like to write with or, or, or for people that I know or, or care about uh, um in that period and uh for some reason particularly after eddie won the brits and it was, it was my tune and all that so i got i used to get asked to do lots of things and i went and did them because they were uh, it was like oh this this could be fun i didn't really care for that i remember that i uh one of my sort of uh things when i was a uh, a boy was oh, imagine being in the top 20 i don't know if you if you're the right age do you remember when smiths used to put the top 20 on a sort of funny little board and used to stick they used to stick little letters in it yes and you'd wait while the the, the person behind the counter said oh look all oh, number 20 is uh, uh, something or other and the rubettes or whatever i thought oh imagine if i was in the top 20 so that never happened with the bible though we got close and stuff but then i'm um, I ended up writing with some really nice guys around Cambridge and we wrote for a band they'd manufactured. This is in the 90s called Hepburn, which was some young women. And I wrote this song, which is not a very good song at all, uh, but I wrote it um, in, a, in about 10 minutes when I'd been to see a friend of mine and they, and they, and they went off to make a cup of tea. So that's how much I put into it. <laughs> and I played it to them, oh, that's good. And then um, it, it was like got to number 13 or something in the chart. So uh, this week, it's called Bugs. Terrible. That's my, yes. Yeah, so, oh, okay. Um, and, but when I got my first publishing deal, the one that I'm still on now, 
So they gave me a very small amount of money and some um, probably very cheap champagne. Yes. And my thing was, when I get into the top 20, I'm going to open that champagne. But that was a long time after. It's like years and years afterwards, you know. It was like, I don't know, 12 years afterwards. Yes, I had a number, number 13, number 14, bugs by head. So I, uh, I press the thing and, and, the, and the cork just falls out. And I, what I didn't know is champagne goes off. <laughs> so it's sick. <laughs> <laughs> so I, but for a, quite a long period around that time, uh, but some people I wrote with, I love writing with like David McCormick and stuff like that. But some people that I wrote with at that time, it was just it was just like a like an adventure. It was oh, so and so wants to write me. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, I, I'm not saying I'm more selective now. It's just it's naturally happened that the the people that I've written with that have given me the most joy, uh, Eddie, obviously, but say uh, Chris Drever, who lives in Glasgow, who I think is a genius. I hope he doesn't hear that. But uh, right, being hit with him or doing tours with him, I get, just get much more of a kick off it, you know, so. Because actually it's interesting, I did an interview with Eddie's brother, Francis Reader from the Trash, trash Can Sinatras, Yes, and um, what a singer! What a singer! And what an amazing! They're character. still and they and amazingly, still going. They're the last ones. They they're, are the last ones. Even the though, last ones. And even, in, and and John Eddie's husband is the he plays in our band and in the Trash Cans as well. And we it just blows us away that it's such still such a going concern. You know, it's brilliant. I know, even though he's but, in LA at the moment and. Well, yeah, two of them are in America. I think one of maybe just him, but for a long time, two were in America and two were in Scotland. So with a passionate following, but he did say that it was the the, the way the press were to his sister was absolutely horrendous. You know the the treatment that she sort of got. So you you must be very wary. I mean, it's probably different now, but that kind of world of being built up by the the music journalist. Well, she had the misfortune of having a, a number one single, didn't she? But but the thing is that when I while I've worked with her is she's had a second sort of career, which is when she made the album of Robert Burns songs, um, and which regenerated. So now a lot of people who come and see her don't even know she was in Fairground, which is great, and she's more popular live when we can play live now than Fairground were, and she is without doubt as Francis would probably agree, the best singer you'll, you'll hear. And she's got the most sound politics and she's the, all that. Stuff. It's like, it just always makes me like, I, I'm in a really, really brilliant band when I'm playing with her. Yes. You can see her know that. But what a few journalists think is like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose it's about, you know, looking back at some of that, you know, it's kind of just cruelty come, you know, bullying. It's really, really it's misogynist and it's, it's, you know, it's not. It's. I don't like it. It's. It's. It's, it's not good. Yeah. I remember. I remember there was a time in uh, Q in the nineties or something. There was a picture of Norma Waterson, who's a very important person in the folk scene, fantastic singer. And they they put a sort of derogatory, sexist comment under a picture of her. And I thought, well, you're just boys, aren't you? You can go away. So no more Q for me. No, I know. I think she did a song called The Flight of the Pelican, which I thought was quite stunning, really. Magical. Yeah, but, but musicians aren't like that with each other. It's like when musicians you met in hotels, they weren't in little gangs or cliques that the press thought about. It's like you. I can remember sitting... Um, I don't know, really, like when they were really early on sitting and having a drinks with the Mannix or something in a bar, you don't start talking about it. You're just like, oh, did you have a good gig? Yeah, that was good. How's it going? Yeah, it's all right. That's what it's really like. Yes. You're, not little, you're not little gangs of people that I hate you because the papers told me to. That's just, that's just rank. <laughs> it, sounds, it does sound rank. I mean, it, it sounds like you've managed to sort of get all your work archived and, and sort of brought together? Because that's one thing that a lot of artists like to do as they sort of, especially yeah. during the lockdown period. Have you sort of... Sort yes, of... I, I did. I started a Patreon page and, and I'm because of that, I had to dig around and find old stuff. I put new, I put something new up yesterday, but a lot of it's searching for old stuff. And I, I, I've loved it because it's like, I forget. I've done, I've had so many uh, sort of, unusual adventures making music and to share them with people it's just been i love it i absolutely love it it's a little creative thing i get to do every day so yeah uh, and i wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for covid i mean of course it's not great to be locked down and i've had 
relatives be ill and people we know be very ill and and stuff and and it's not it's not to be taken lightly but there have been the fact that I've not been on the road all this year which I would have been uh, one way or another and I'm in my music room which is my music room and I'm writing every day I've, I I I feel a bit guilty saying it but and I've been at home with the family I've, I I haven't hated it I haven't hated every minute. So <laughs> it sounds it sounds like it's been it's been a nice time to take stock. I mean, you yeah. know, I mentioned earlier that my first single was Bowie's Space Oddity and you got it what right. Was the third choice Velvet Velvet Goldmine was the third one, wasn't it? Yeah. That was it. Changes yeah, and yeah. and I thought yeah. I thought then B-sides, they're amazing. They're good, B-sides, yeah. And then I realised that was, I slightly hit. That was a one-off. That yeah, was a bit yeah. of a one-off, wasn't it, really? Because I, yeah. I think my next single was Rod Stewart Sailing and his B-side was something like Stone Cold Sober, which was all right. But but Blondie's, mm-hmm. actually, Denis Denis was my third one and that had some good B-sides. So, yeah, they did have, you know, B-sides were fine. But as, are, but, yeah. as a, but when you look at Bowie's life, you know, you realise that he he was, you know, especially in the 70s, was releasing an album a year and then he did his low album, Relocated. I mean, do you feel as an artist, when you start looking back, that, that opportunity now to sort of take more chances or be more experimental at times or not sort of have to follow any particular fashion or style? That's one of the advantages of not being successful, <laughs> to be honest. That's just truthful. I, I mean, I really, the last record I did, which I probably was one of my favourites, and I was such a joy to make, um, it's called Before. I don't know if you've heard it, but it was, uh, I, I, it was a, an utter joy to make. And, it's, and the people, the handful of people who care about it loved it. But you, you, you don't get that. Even when we were signed to Christmas, there were pressure on us to to sort of produce something that was um saleable i guess i work with a lot i work a lot with chris difford from squeeze you know which is i suppose they were around in the 80s but they by then they were even though they would have only been in their early 20s amazingly they were they were, they were thought of as a, a vintage by then uh just uh, speaking to chris about some of the hoops they had to jump through in order to maintain their thing i don't miss that yes sort of thing when you listen to i mean just kind of i know you think god that's a long time ago let it go david but you know do you but with the with the with the bible did you sort of when you listen to the production do you often sort of wished it was slightly different i just wondered with the sound of the band well, yeah, the first record was made so cheaply. But actually, when we remastered the album, we, we were very lucky. Was, when I was in the Great Divide, we met a producer called Greg Walsh, who was a proper proper engineer producer. His brother was Peter Walsh, who did like Simple Minds and stuff. And we were very lucky, and he remixed the two singles. And I don't like my voice very much, but they're not that bad. And and when we remastered them, I was surprised that they weren't that bad. And then the next record was produced by Steve Earle, and he did a really good he did a really good job. So I don't I I suppose so. I mean, my favourite album sonically is the third one, which is called Dodo. That's my favourite one because we felt in control of our environment, I think, by then. When you first go in the studio, you just you talk, you think, oh, what are all these flashing lights? You don't really know what's going on, you know? Yes. But by the third one, we kind of knew, oh, if you move that mic there, this will happen and all that. So and it just felt much more like um, ours. And um, it just and Jim Abyss is just amazing, you know. It just sounds, sounds that's the only one that I will occasionally put on for pleasure. Yeah. But when I had to hear "Walking the Ghost Back Home" again, I was I was pleasantly surprised. And as I said, we had a very very good drummer, and that was always the secret of making you stand out from other indie bands was the drummer always. When they had a shonky drummer, it always sounded a bit shambolic. But yes, well, I suppose there was that 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 particular scene, wasn't there? And yeah. and it was interesting. I don't know if you saw it, but there was the wedding present did a film on their their album George Best, and uh, yeah. a lot of it starts to centre around the producer and the drummer. And the tensions between the two, because obviously the producer was thinking this drummer isn't kind of up to it and he can't play to the click track and the click track. And there was kind of issues. I think they both seem to got removed from my memory from this film, got removed from the project a bit. And, you know, they had to get another drummer and then another producer. And and, uh, 
And, you know, I think they patched it up a bit, but there was definitely... It's, it's horrible, though. It makes people feel, especially if they're not that secure about the way they play. It's just horrible. I don't think that sort of thing happens so much anymore. There's, it's, um, it was an interesting time, right? Because I think that the invention of bands around the C86 around that time, oh, I love that cassette. I absolutely loved it. it was was it was about ideas and sometimes the bands that came through, their ideas were more realised than their they hadn't they hadn't put the hours into playing which was no i'm not passing judgment on that at all and that and then they went from making indie singles to getting deals or working with producers they ran into problems huge problems it's as simple as that but the ideas and the sounds and the energy and the i used to really love a band I, maybe you can remember what happened to them i think there were some great bands i used to love a band called the decorators i don't know if you remember them no I really like them, and I never knew why they did And I'll tell you the other band I really love, and it's ended really sadly and tragically. And I don't know if they fit in with what you're thinking of so, um, so much, um, but I thought they were really good. They were called The Sound. Did you know them? Oh, I did an interview with the drummer. Well, she's so sad because the singer, I think, I think they were amazing. Yes. So there were these... But they were really good players, but the decorators weren't really good players. But I loved their record. I just loved their records. So it's like it didn't matter. And that was one of the, I think that's one of the great things about that period is it didn't really matter if you weren't a brilliant drummer or a brilliant guitar player. It was the rec the records yes. were sort of well, spiky I think there, and strange. There were several bands. It was Bog Shared, Big Flame, and Stump, and they were definitely <laughs> you definitely didn't want their second album, even if they gave it to you. But the, well, you know, this is really funny because Stump, Stump signed to ensign the label i talked about earlier they signed and they did do it uh they, they did it they did it go down the producer route and there was there was charlton heston that put your pants on yeah and yeah with a fierce pancake was that was their second record was it not that was, was stripper. we loved them yeah <laughs> they were very good yes but I don't know if you'd want a fourth album or uh, even a third album of stump stuff really. yeah. I mean and it would be hard to keep that energy I mean it wasn't you know, it was an it was a one shot wonder, wasn't it? You know, I think I think I think there was a, there was a sort of it had a dual thing going on in the eighties, which was strange. Which was this sort of ah, oh, isn't it brilliant? These bands are like this, and then oh, let's change them. And that's what we found in our own little way that we were like we made this album ourselves that did well, and we were signing. The first thing they wanted seemed to want to do was change us, and that was odd. And and you, I think you saw that particularly with Gang of Four, because by the time they made Hard. It's all lindrums and synthesizers, and it's so far removed from the, the the raw political rage of the first record. It's like, my God, what's happened? Yes. Well, it's interesting with the um, Jesus Christ. What was I going to say? Oh, yes, with with that that thing about indie label uh, bands. It was that there was two bands I've interviewed, uh, the Red Guitars and the Railway Children, and it was like on their second album. I think they both signed to Virgin, and they did. and they both went. Actually, we're going to give it a miss. We're going to break up because we just really hate doing this now. And yeah. and and it was funny because the guy from the Railway Children said they want. He was like had this idea of who they wanted to be like, you know, which was more like, I suppose, more REM than anything. And the, and the management wanted to put them on tour, support, and take that. I think at that point he was thinking, no, I'm not really into support. That bizarrely at a period of great pain for the Bible. As I said, we had a fantastic drummer, but they put us with this producer, and I don't even remember his name, and he decided to replace our drummer with a machine. It's a terrible track. I found it when I was digging through the archives. It's awful, really awful bit of production. But he was in the running for working with the railroad children, and they came into the studio while we were all sitting there with our head in our hands. <laughs> and he was saying, oh, check this out. And we're all like, what? This is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think that just kind of, the, the producer yeah. is so important. I remember, you know, people like, I love Motorhead and Lemmy. And I think they, you know, had a really good producer to begin with. Then the producer got into a fight with the drummer. So they had to get Fast Eddie to produce the third album. That was the end of the band, basically. And mm. then they took a long time to get another producer that could capture the sound. I think getting that person who was like another member of the band 
to complement mm. everybody is kind well, of critical. The, what I felt about a lot of producers in the eighties is that they, it, it, they, they were the stars, and they would put their signature sounds and signature things into records. And I, I, I produce records quite a bit, and I, remembering that period, I never do that. To me, the idea is, is my job is to hear what someone's playing or wants to do and help them uh, realise that. It's not, if I, I don't, they sometimes say, will you sing on it or something? And I will discourage them. I say, you don't, no, you don't really want that. It's about you, you know. Yes. And that was very, very lacking in in, in the 80s. And that was why we love Steve Earle, because that's exactly Steve Earle's take on it. It was like, no, this should be you. Do your stuff. But it was interesting because there was another band that now has got more hype than ever, is Talk Talk. And when I listen to that, it still sounds so 80s. I find it quite hard going. But I kind of think with a better, with a different producer and a different vibe. <gasps> I don't know if I agree with that because um, when, we were when we were mixing Eureka, the second record, for the first time, we, it, it took two goes. We were doing it at a studio called Wessex and they were making Colour of Spring in the room next door. And we could hear it coming through when they had the door open and it, it really did sound like what was coming next. It really did. So I, I don't know. It's, I, I have quite a personal attachment to that and hearing, hearing the tracks actually going down, you know. Yes. So I, in, and, and actually sitting in there and feeling like, shit, we're, we're miles behind here. So for me, I have quite a connection with that in that it felt, and a lot of post- like post rock bands and stuff that's that that became the template you know so i i i don't know because I, I, I think the 80s okay god we're stuck in the 80s aren't we but there was a yeah. definitely there was lots of tribes and there was the indie tribe with you know that kind of sound that you know the john peel-esque bands yeah. and say like, like the smiths and then you had the trevor horn-esque production quality yeah which and and you know you couldn't really you either loved one or loved the other, but you you know it was hard to embrace either. So I suppose when I hear a talk, the Talk Talk kind of album, it has that slightly like David Bowie's two albums from that period, not Let's Dance, but the I, other I, two. I think you were talking about those early ones. I think once they worked with Tim Freeze Green, I think that uh, uh, um, Spirit of Eden, and um, although he, he did do um, Chorus, but, but Laughing Stock is just so out there. I, it's, it's, I don't know. A lot of the things that they did on those two records, people still do in terms of sonically and it's very influential, but it didn't fit in that time, I don't think. I suppose when you hear things like um, um, It's My Life and stuff, that sounds very 80s, but I don't think Colour of Spring does at all to me. I'll have to look back at it. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're having our first round. We well, are. Yeah, God, this is on a first date and it's all going wrong. <laughs> God, I will have to say goodbye. Yes. Soon okay. Look. So just what? To, but it's good chat though. So no, just one last. So if you could, when you were sort of with your sort of mucky t-shirt and stains and all that, and mm. a young eighteen-year-old self, what would you say to a, a young eighteen-year-old self pushing that trolley around Andy's warehouse? I wasn't 18. I was, I'd already had a deal. I was in my mid-twenties. Uh, what would I say? Okay. It's going to be all right, I would say. You probably. would say it was going to be, don't worry so much. Yeah, don't worry so much. So? It's, it, it's, it's, yeah, that's what I'd say. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I did an interview with Tim, actually, and his partner at the weekend, which was quite funny because we were talking... With Tim who? Tim from Talk Talk, actually. Oh, I, oh right, yeah. Because he's got a new musical project with his partner. Mm. So, um, yes. But interesting enough, that you know, the sound that you mentioned, have you seen the f a film of theirs that got made? I did not know that. I'll send you a link. Oh, if you could, I'd be really interested in seeing that. It's very, yeah, the drummer was still, you know, because the drummer's still... Well, he's come out of his, I don't know, he's retired now, but he's, he, he's, he does tour and uh, that particular music still, I think. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's very amuse, uh, emotional and uh, moving, actually. But, but, yeah. but when you hear that song winning, that yeah, blows that your mind. Song. That will just change your life. Yeah, it's one of, uh, it was an amazing song winning. Yeah. I love that song. And I think 
yeah, it sounded years ahead of its time, I thought. It's really good. It's a really, really good song. And there you go. That is me in conversation with Huadin uh, from the Bible and, well, basically his solo life as well. So thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. You need a medal or deserve one. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these shows have been archived, so you can find them on the podcast land. That is Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86show. It's all there and much, much more. I've been David Eastall. Have a great week. Stay safe.